Welcome to the Missing Midwest podcast. My name is Liz and I am your host. I was born, raised, and still live in the Midwest. My goal for this podcast is to highlight some of the stories of individuals that have gone missing. Some of these victims you may have heard of, while others may be new to your ears. As a heads up, the people that are discussed in this podcast are considered innocent until proven guilty. All the sources in this episode can be found on my website, missingmidwest.com. Today's case is a listener's request. Thank you, Ashley. And will actually be part one of a three-part series covering missing boys from the Des Moines area in the 1980s. As a reminder, there is a case you want it covered. You can submit the request on my website, missingmidwest.com. Today's episode discusses another difficult case involving a child. We are covering the disappearance of a young boy who vanished in the early morning hours while on his paper route in West Des Moines, Iowa. This is the disappearance of John David Gosh. Like any 12-year-old boy, John David Gosh, who went by the nickname Johnny, wanted some independence from his parents. Johnny had started a newspaper route in his neighborhood, delivering the Des Moines Register to earn a little money to buy his own dirt bike. He was hoping his parents would allow him to take on the responsibility of delivering newspapers on his own. On September 4, 1982, Johnny had asked his parents over dinner if he could do the route on his own going forward. According to Johnny's mother, he said he was the biggest kid picking up papers and he wanted to do it himself. However, Johnny's parents decided he was too young and it was still dark out when he had to pick up the papers, so his father, John Gosh Sr., would continue to go with him. At the time of his disappearance, Johnny was a big 12-year-old. He was 5 foot, 7 inches tall, and weighed around 140 pounds. The next morning on Sunday, September 5, 1982, Johnny had woken up sometime around 5.45 a.m. and left his house located at 1004 45th Street to do his paper route. Typically, Johnny would have woken his father to come with him, but this morning, even though he had already discussed continuing the paper route with his dad, he opted to go out on his own with his little dog, a Dutch hound named Gretchen. Now, anyone who knows me knows I love dogs, and this would have totally been me at 12 years old. Thinking nothing bad could happen, grabbing my little pup and heading out the door on my merry way. Putting yourself in the mindset of a 12-year-old can be difficult, but think about it. You're a kid and nothing bad has ever happened to you. You live in Iowa. Nothing bad happens here, right? You're probably thinking your parents are just being unfair. You're going to prove to them that you can do this on your own. Unfortunately, at 12, you just don't realize that evil may be just around the corner. When Johnny left the house, he cut through some of his neighbor's yards at exactly 5.50 a.m., a neighbor heard Johnny and his wagon go past and walked about two blocks to pick up the newspapers at the corner of 42nd and Ashworth Road. Just to let you know, if you check out our Missing Midwest website or my Instagram page, you can view a map of these locations to kind of build a clearer picture. Apparently, once Johnny had gotten near the corner 
of where the newspaper drop was, a man sitting in an older, two-toned, blue Ford Fairmont was parked right near the newspaper drop. Now, some witnesses spotted him parked there with his lights off for a full 30 minutes before he stopped Johnny, while others say he was driving down the road, stopped, and backed up to speak to him. There is some conflicting information out there, but regardless, we know Johnny was stopped at that corner by a man in this blue car. Apparently, this man needed directions on how to get to 86th Street in Ashworth. Okay, we need to raise all of the red flags and take several seats. I am a 30-year-old woman, and I'm telling you, I would never stop a child and ask for directions. If an older adult is asking a child for directions, we have lots of problems. Please keep this in mind and tell your children this. Adults do not ask kids for help driving somewhere since kids do not drive. Also, if you're looking for a numbered road adjacent to the exact road you're currently on, keep driving. If the numbers are getting close to that street number that you're looking for, it'll get you there. Of course, any young kid is going to want to be as helpful as possible, and Johnny attempted to give him directions. The man apparently made a U-turn and drove on down the road. Another newspaper carrier named Mike spoke with Johnny after he had given him directions and quoted Johnny as saying, that man is really weird. I agree, Johnny. Within a few minutes, and while Johnny was still chatting with his friend Mike, that same car returned to the area and again parked his car at the corner near the newspaper drop. Johnny attempted to give the man directions again, but because he's 12 and doesn't drive, he wasn't able to. So he approached an adult neighbor named John Gossie, who was a parent of three boys who also deliver newspapers. This neighbor went to help the driver with directions he was requesting. Gossie later told media that the driver seemed to be high on drugs because his eyes were beady and he was staring into the horizon. He described the man in the blue car as being about 40 years old and had a mustache. In addition, he saw the license plate and said it was from Warren County. Warren County, Iowa is just south of Polk County, which is where Johnny lived. The driver took off down the road, but before doing so, he flicked his interior car dome light on and off three times. It seemed like he was signaling something. There is a composite photo available of the man from the car available to be viewed on our social media as well. After this interaction, Johnny was seen walking north on 42nd Street with his wagon full of newspapers to begin his deliveries. Another witness said they had seen a man walk out of the shadows at 42nd Street and follow Johnny near the paper drop and talk to him. Johnny then crossed the street and parked his wagon at the corner of Maricourt Lane which is a block away where he picked up his newspapers. According to the other newspaper boys, Johnny always parked his wagon on this corner while he delivered the papers to Fran Crest Circle. Some carriers witnessed Johnny sitting in his wagon at this corner, and a neighbor said they had seen a black and silver car roll up to that corner, but did not see Johnny. So it's unclear if Johnny was sitting in the wagon at that time or if he approached the car. This car sped off, rolled through the stop sign, took a left turn, and has never been identified. From there, Johnny was never to be seen.
it has been determined that this entire sequence of events from when the man pulled up to get directions from Johnny to his disappearance took no longer than 12 minutes. Yes, 12 minutes to destroy a 12-year-old's life. Multiple sources reported different timing, but somewhere between 7 and 7.45 a.m., a neighbor called the Gosh home and spoke with Johnny's father, asking where his newspaper was since it had not arrived. Assuming Johnny had overslept, which was very out of character for him since he is described as responsible, punctual, and never having skipped work in the year he had been delivering papers, John went to wake Johnny up. When he opened his door, he noticed the room was completely empty. No Johnny and no Gretchen the dog. Johnny always took Gretchen with him to deliver newspapers, so his dad assumed this is where he went. So then he decided to go out and search the neighborhood on his own. He found Johnny's wagon quickly. All 37 newspapers were still in the wagon with some of the rubber bands thrown about the wagon. John was concerned but decided to deliver papers himself while continuing to search for his son. Unable to locate him, he went back to the home and spoke with his wife, Noreen. John then called the police to report their son missing around 8.30 a.m. Sometime later, Gretchen wandered home on her own without Johnny. While waiting for the police to arrive, Noreen called around to the other newsboys' homes when she was told about the man who had requested directions from Johnny. Noreen said by the time the police arrived, she had the entire story of events, including a partial license plate number of the car. This mama was one badass, and she was not going to wait for anyone to find her son. Noreen questioned the Des Moines Police Department, asking when the FBI would be brought in to assist with locating her son. The response from the police department was astonishing. They said the FBI would not be brought in because there was no crime. I'm sorry, no crime? A 12-year-old boy is missing without a trace, and you believe there is no crime? There were so many people who had seen Johnny within moments of him disappearing who described some very strange interactions and activity in this neighborhood. Even if you think the kid ran off, you should be doing everything in your power to ensure he is safely returned home. Even though Noreen had basically started her own investigation and had gathered crucial details regarding, at minimum, possible witnesses of her son's disappearance, or even what we now believe is a solid suspect, the police did nothing. In the 1980s, police procedure required a 72-hour waiting period before a missing child case could be pursued. In the documentary, Who Took Johnny?, Paul Sparrow, an executive producer from America's Most Wanted, said, The FBI would track your stolen car across state lines, but wouldn't track your stolen child. There was no national infrastructure to support the hunt for missing children. Well, Mr. Sparrow, I don't think I would have believed that if it wasn't for this case. Any true crime enthusiast knows that police have dropped the ball more than once when it comes to investigating these types of crimes. But honestly, the West Des Moines Police Department 
really held their ground on this one and refused to help this family track down any possible leads. Also, I don't want to just pick on the police department. Hello, FBI. How is a car more valuable than a life? It is clear if a child is missing, but their beloved dog is left behind, they did not just run away. If they took their eyes off of this procedure manual and into real life for maybe like two seconds, they would have added up the pieces and investigated this properly. What if Johnny would have been the son of one of those police officers? Would this case have been handled differently? Without the help of the police, the Goshes knew if there was any hope, they had to take matters into their own hands. They organized a search that fanned out five miles. Nothing of Johnny's was ever found. They also contacted the FBI, who didn't have any interest in being involved at the time. They then reached out to the press to draw attention to their missing son. They also hired a sketch artist to draw a picture of the man in the blue car and distributed over 10,000 posters with Johnny's pictures to places throughout the entire country. Within a month of Johnny going missing, they hired a private investigator to continue the pursuit of finding their son. Because Noreen and John Sr. were in the public eye, they received significant criticism. Noreen was often called names instead of receiving sympathy. In general, the police and media treated Noreen horribly. Officers were disrespectful to her and requested to be taken off the case because of her. One reporter said that many of the people were young and could not relate to what she was going through. But now that she is a mother... She wants to thank Noreen for all that she did. We all know not every police department or officer handles cases this way. But overall, this case was handled so poorly from day one, I am horrified for anyone that had to deal with this police department at that time. It's not that the police were completely ignoring leads about Johnny. One example of police follow-up included an incident a few days after Johnny went missing. They were called to a coin-operated car wash on Harding Road, which is about 20 miles away from where he was last seen. There was a pool of blood found in the stall. After testing that blood, it was determined not to match Johnny's blood type. However, the police still exhibited a lack of motivation to find Johnny, as they were still assuming he was a runaway. Even though the police failed to help the Goshes, these parents were going to continue to fight for other missing children. After relentless efforts from Noreen, on July 1st, 1984, the Johnny Gosh Bill, requiring law enforcement act immediately when a minor is reported missing, was signed into law. This bill has been adopted by eight other states. As for the other 41 states, I think this is a bill we can all get behind and should push to have this passed. Now, I know I said the police were ignoring many of the leads, but you haven't heard anything yet. I'm about to tell you some of the most jaw-dropping parts of this case. In 1985, three years after Johnny disappeared, the first clue to Johnny possibly being alive had come out. A dollar bill surfaced with a handwritten note. A woman received a dollar bill as change in Sioux City, Iowa, that said, I am alive, Johnny Gosh. The handwriting was analyzed, 
and believed to be a match to Johnny's. As for if this dollar bill was able to be fingerprinted or further analyzed for any DNA, it is not clear. Based on how the police have handled this case to date, I'm going to go ahead and assume not. Years would pass with not much information regarding Johnny. But in March of 1997, Noreen was living in her own apartment in West Des Moines as her and John Gosh Sr. had divorced a few years prior. At around 2.30 in the morning, she heard persistent knocking at her door. When she peered through the door, she looked into the man's eyes and knew it was her son. She asked, who is it? And he said, it's me, Mom, Johnny. Johnny arrived with another young man who she did not know and he did not speak. However, her son would look over to him for approval to speak. To prove he was her son, he opened his shirt to show her a large birthmark on his chest. She tried to contact the police, but Johnny convinced her not to, saying that he would be killed. Johnny and Noreen spoke for about an hour when he said he had to go. He advised Noreen to not tell anyone of their meeting or to disclose that he was alive for his safety. Noreen followed her son's wishes and did not tell anyone, including her former husband, of this meeting. The meeting was only disclosed two years after that, while she was under oath during a court hearing of Paul Bonacci and Larry King, who was a manager at Franklin Credit Union and being accused of sexually assaulting Paul. Paul said he was one of the men who helped abduct and abuse Johnny. Paul knew many things about Johnny that were not public. He mentioned the large birthmark on Johnny's body, which was made public, but he also knew about distinct scars on his tongue, ankle, and leg. Paul also mentioned how Johnny spoke of meditation and yoga he would do to stay calm. Johnny used to attend yoga classes that his mother taught. Paul also mentioned a trait of Johnny's that when he was upset, he would stutter. Paul was a victim of sexual assault and the child pornography ring. He also had multiple personality disorder, which is now known as dissociative identity disorder. And because of these things, the police refused to take his allegations seriously. Paul stated that he had had contact with Johnny a few years after his disappearance and provided details of his changed appearance to a sketch artist. While in prison for unrelated charges, he was interviewed by the media and met with Johnny's mother and provided information about what had happened to her son and that he was sold to a man in Colorado. In the documentary, Who Took Johnny?, they visited the home in Colorado where he alleged Johnny and other children were held. The home was exactly as he had described, and names were carved in the crawl space of the home where he said the captors often held children. Police to this day have still not interviewed or questioned Paul in connection with Johnny's disappearance. All information that he has provided has been brought forward through his own hearing against Larry King and media interviews. While Paul has a less than ideal past, 
the fact that the police have refused to interview him or investigate his allegations is wild to me. This is the first real lead on his whereabouts that we have had, and they have done absolutely nothing to pursue this. If we fast forward a few more years, yet another clue would arrive at Noreen's doorstep. In August 2006, she started to receive dozens of photos of teenage boys who appeared to be in distress and being held in captivity. Noreen sent the photos to the West Des Moines Police Department and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. The police initially wrote off the photos as from a previous case in Florida, but then later retracted their statement and stated they cannot determine who all the boys in the photographs are. One of the investigators from the Florida case stated they had only had access to one of the photographs and had identified only the three boys in that one photograph. However, no proof of who the boys were was ever provided to the Des Moines Police Department. And, strangely, no crime was ever tied to those photos. So, again, we find ourselves questioning, what are the police doing to find Johnny? In the documentary, Who Took Johnny?, They do display some of these photos, and I have got to tell you, a few of these photos look exactly like Johnny. The photos with just the individual boy were not able to be connected to anyone, and Noreen also believes that boy is her son. Because of the nature of these photos, we are electing to not display them on my website. I had seen the photographs in question because they were in the documentary, And let me tell you, they do closely resemble Johnny, and they are very disturbing. I also think a mother would be able to identify her son in a photo. Like I said, the police were just not doing nothing. At the time of his disappearance, police said they had checked with all of the late-night establishments in the area. They also contacted any witnesses and asked them to review mugshots of known sex offenders, and they had followed many leads, including some from psychics. Johnny was last seen wearing a white sweatshirt with Kim's Academy on the back, warm-up pants, blue rubber flip-flops, and carrying a yellow newspaper bag. Almost two years to the day after Johnny went missing, on August 12th, 1984, Another young paperboy named Eugene Martin vanished from the south side of Des Moines. We will cover the case of Eugene in detail next week. After the second boy went missing, one of his relatives was working for a company named Anderson and Erickson Dairy in Des Moines. This relative reached out to the president, Jim Erickson, for help and the company elected to run full-page ads in newspapers, and large images of the boys were placed on the sides of trucks. In addition to this, they decided to run the stories and photos on the side of milk cartons of missing children. Johnny and Eugene were the second and third boys to be run on the side of the milk cartons. This idea sparked dairies across the country to follow suit. 
more than 700 dairies became involved, resulting in 1.5 billion milk cartons with images of missing kids to be distributed across the country. This was a massive effort. By April of 1985, the National Child Safety Council announced that sightings of these missing children had increased by more than 30%. It has been over 38 years since young Johnny went missing. It is unclear if he is still alive, but we can only hope that if he is, that he is safe. If you are listening to this on the day it's released, it is only one day before Johnny's 51st birthday. Please check out an age progression photo on my website and social media and continue to keep an eye out for this man. There have been no arrests in the case of missing Johnny Gosh, and this case is considered cold. Anyone with any details on this disappearance of Johnny are encouraged to contact the FBI Des Moines Division at 515-223-4278 or the West Des Moines Police Department at 515-223-3211. That was a tough one, guys. Thank you so much for listening to the Missing Midwest podcast. Next week, we'll be looking further into the missing case of Eugene Martin, who also went missing while delivering newspapers in the Des Moines area. You can view all of our source material on missingmidwest.com. Pictures from things from today's case can also be found on our social media pages by searching Missing Midwest. And until next time. Stay safe out there.